If you're a musician, it's always helpful to hit the right notes. But some people are a lot better than others at finding the right notes. People like Mozart, Beethoven, and John Philip Sousa, who could hear any sound and tell you exactly what note it is. Dr. Diana Deutsch, professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, says it's called perfect pitch. It's generally used to refer to the ability to identify a note by its name in the absence of a reference note. So if you hear a particular note, you can say that's C-sharp or that's G and so on. So what that means is you would be walking down the street, you'd hear a car alarm and you'd be able to say, ah, that's in G or G-sharp or something like this. So absolutely no reference on being able to name musical notes seemingly out of thin air. That's Stephen Van Hedger, a postdoctoral scholar in cognitive psychology at the University of Chicago. He not only researches perfect pitch, he has perfect pitch, which some experts call absolute pitch. And he says many people who have it can not only name any note they hear, they can produce any note on demand. In many cases, it should work in terms of both perception and production, but production can be measured in a couple of different ways. If I asked you to give me a C-sharp, could you give me a C-sharp? Sure. Oh. So is that really a C-sharp? Yep. But how do they know that? Dr. Howard Nussbaum, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, says people with perfect or absolute pitch don't even have to think about it. For people who don't have absolute pitch, to get a sense of something that is like absolute pitch, as you're listening to me talk and I say a word like dog, you just hear the word. The word just emerges in your head from the sounds coming out of my mouth. And you know that word has the consonants D, the vowel A, and the consonant G in it. So I say dog and you hear it as a word, as if you were seeing it in print. Absolute pitch is kind of like that. The note is heard as the note. So it's not that you hear something like a sound in the distance and you go, oh, what is that sound? I think that sound might be a gunshot. It's something that comes to you as the note itself. So I started piano around seven or eight years old, but never had the kind of insight that I was different in any way. In fact, I found it very surprising that other members of my family couldn't do this ability, be turned around and name notes that were being played on the piano. A C had a certain C-ness about it, a G had a certain genus about it, right? That just seemed self-evident. So it was very surprising to figure out that not everybody could do this. So how many people can do that? Deutsch says it's a matter of debate. The number that's generally given is 1 in 10,000. And that was initially sort of pulled out of the air. But I think that it's actually reasonable. In my experience with testing an awful lot of people, I'm constantly surprised at how very rare perfect pitch is. We quote in our papers the number that everyone expresses, which is 1 in 10,000. But Steve has been able to find lots of people with absolute pitch. And these are people who actually pass all the tests. The estimate that's out there in the public of 1 in 10,000 is really low. Deutsch believes that most of us are born with the capacity of developing perfect pitch if we're given the right environment early enough. Studies have shown that babies will use the sort of absolute pitch level of tones rather than relative pitch levels in making various judgments that have been designed for babies to be able to make. On the other hand, that's different from being able to label a note, to name one. And of course, babies can't speak, so they can't do that anyway. 
I think that most people have a form of implicit absolute pitch, that is that they can get a pretty good idea of what key a piece is in or whether or not when they hear it, if it's being played in the correct key, but they're unable to actually name the notes. But isn't that simply a matter of not having musical training? Could there be millions of people who have perfect pitch and don't know it? So that's one of the classic kind of catch-22s of actually measuring absolute pitch ability. So many of the traditional ways in which we would test for absolute pitch necessitate a kind of musical knowledge, right? Because they're being tested and asked to give an explicit musical label. But I think you're, you're hitting on an important point, which is an individual could process pitches in an absolute sense, but having absolutely no musical training would not have the kind of a cultural label to ascribe to any particular isolated pitch. And so that has been proposed as one reason why absolute pitch estimates might be actually artificially low. And it could be there's a little perfect pitch in all of us. That earworm, the tune that's stuck in your head and won't leave, that's auditory working memory, the same place that perfect pitch comes from. There's actually a growing body of research that suggests regardless of whether or not you have perfect pitch or regardless of whether or not you're a musician versus, you know, a musical novice, that most individuals have some kind of absolute pitch representation for the right kind of stimuli. So you mentioned songs getting stuck in your head, for instance. So there's good evidence to suggest that if I play you a song that you're very familiar with, and I play you two versions, one that is at the exact absolute pitch that you would hear in your environment, and one that's ever so subtly shifted by, let's say, one note, one semitone, that you might not be perfect at being able to tell the correct one, but you would be significantly above chance at saying, yes, this is the correct version that I hear in my environment. So even though you wouldn't necessarily be able to say, oh, well, this one's in C and this one's in C sharp, and I know that the song I hear in my environment is C, so therefore that's the correct answer, you still have a kind of an implicit knowledge of this one sounds more correct than this other one. Deutsch says that absolute pitch is much more common where tonal languages such as Vietnamese and Mandarin are spoken. Toddlers learn to match pitches because the same syllables spoken at different pitches means different things. For example, the word ma means mother and ma means hemp and ma means horse and ma is a reproach. In Mandarin. In the Western world, Deutsch says musical training is more likely to produce perfect pitch, but the traditional belief is that it has to come at an early age or the window closes. People who began musical training at age five do a little bit better, you know, statistically as a group, than people who began musical training at age, say, six, who do a little bit better than people who began training at age seven. And then by age eight, it's really unlikely that a person would score well on a test for perfect pitch. So it has been generally assumed that whatever kind of absolute pitch knowledge you may have is either completely genetically predetermined or cultivated in a critical period, so a very early period of, of musical instruction. And then by adulthood, that ability is essentially crystallized. There's not much wiggle room in terms of your absolute pitch ability. In other words, traditional thinking is that if you haven't acquired perfect pitch by about age 10, you'll never get it. But Hedger and Nussbaum, along with University of Chicago researcher Dr. Shannon Heald, are producing studies challenging that assumption. 
In one of them, the team recruited a group of adults without regard to musical training and pre-tested them to be sure they didn't have perfect pitch. After we pre-tested them, we gave them a little bit of feedback. So we um, would go through the same kind of procedure, but after they made their decision, we would replay the note and we would give them a little bit of feedback. That was a C, that was a G, that was an F sharp, things like this. So we did this for approximately, um, the training lasted around 40 minutes. And then afterwards, we would test them without feedback on the same piano notes that they were trained on. And so what we found is um, a significant improvement over the course of training. I think it's important to note, likely due to the short nature of training here, that we weren't suddenly seeing you know, everybody have perfect pitch. We saw significant learning, but the kinds of levels of learning that we were seeing we're still below what would typically be defined as a kind of a cutoff for a true or a genuine AP absolute pitch ability. Participants even did well with notes they hadn't been trained on in different octaves and played by different musical instruments. But even that improvement wouldn't mean much if the participants forgot everything they'd learned as soon as they walked out of the lab. Hedger says that didn't happen. They had done a single session of learning and then went out into the world, came back several months later and seemed to retain a lot more of this absolute pitch knowledge than I think anybody would actually believe. So we actually did not see any significant decreases in performance for this generalized learning test, which I think is probably the most stringent test of absolute pitchability. So a very slight decrease, but not statistically significant. So whatever kind of knowledge that they actually learned in the initial learning session seemed to be relatively stable even many months after training had ended. But if people can improve a lot with less than an hour of training, is it possible that a little more work can actually teach perfect pitch? Hedger says that ongoing studies indicate yes. There is good evidence that at least for some adults who would not pass any tests for absolute pitch, after eight weeks, which is approximately 40 hours of training, they are behaviorally indistinguishable from absolute pitch possessors. So we see this in a subset of participants. And so an interesting question is, would we see this in all participants given more training? Or does this have to do with potentially a kind of a genetic predisposition that is being shaped with the right kind of environmental experience. So it's much too early to tell, but expanding this kind of training paradigm to a much longer term setting does seem to successfully train what you would call genuine absolute pitchability, at least in some adults. This learned perfect pitch may be indistinguishable at first from the kind that's acquired in childhood, but what about later on? We have, once again, preliminary data on this suggesting that for the individuals, well, for everybody, but including the individuals who pass tests of absolute pitchability after training, that kind of knowledge seems to stick. So there's absolutely no loss of this information once it's been trained up. But what's perhaps more important to all of us, and not just musicians, is that these studies may apply to a lot more than just perfect pitch. They may apply to how we learn almost everything. These new studies are challenging old assumptions that some things are simply unlearnable. People have argued that this is something you have to be born with, that you need early experience with, that there's a critical period for, and they make those claims about a number of things. And so one of the issues that we are interested in generally is to try to understand are the limits that people have made assumptions about. There's no evidence for that. Those are really assumptions people make. Are we that limited as humans? And the work on perfect pitch is actually a testing ground. It's a way of 
trying to understand that general problem and to challenge some of those notions. And so we look at this not just as trying to understand perfect pitch and what we've acquired from our environment, what exposure does, and what are the toolkits we need in order to promote that learning, but also in terms of a more general problem of how do we learn spoken language? How do we learn to perceive things in the world like regularities and structure? So it may be that the limits of learning we've always accepted aren't really limits at all. It may not matter that you can't tell a C-sharp from an A-flat, but it may mean you're never too old to learn. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net, where you'll also find archives of our programs. You can also find those on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Cardiac arrest is a leading cause of death in the U.S. CPR, if performed immediately, can double or triple the odds of survival, and a victim's chance of survival decreases by 7 to 10 percent for every minute that passes without the use of an automated external defibrillator, or AED. New surveys by the American Heart Association show help may not be there when needed. Dr. Michael Kurz of the University of Alabama at Birmingham is an American Heart Association volunteer. Everyone needs to know CPR and AEDs need to be available in every public place, including workplaces. Half of workers and two-thirds of hospitality workers say they can't locate AEDs at work. More than half of workers can't get CPR or AED training from their employer, and nearly a third of safety managers say training only became important to offer after an incident occurred. If you run a business, be sure it has an AED. And if you don't know CPR, find out where you can learn. Visit heart.org slash workforce training. That's heart.org slash workforce training. Medical Notes this week. Technology provides great tools for parenting, but the digital age may also carry some unintended consequences for young children. A study presented at the Pediatric Academic Societies finds that the more time a baby or toddler spends using a smartphone or tablet, the more likely they are to have a delay in their expressive speech. Expressive speech is a child's ability to convey feelings and information. The study says that for each additional 30 minutes of screen time per day, there is a 49% increased risk of expressive language delay. Childbirth is an exhausting process for a mother, but have you considered that the doctor might also become fatigued? A new study in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology says that the number of hours an obstetrician has been on the clock before an unscheduled delivery significantly increases risks to the mother and baby. Researchers found that by the ninth hour of a doctor's 12-hour shift, the likelihood of adverse outcomes increases by as much as 30%. You might think otherwise, but a new study suggests that the majority of bosses who are abusive to their subordinates do not get pleasure from it. According to a survey in the Academy of Management Journal, leaders who act cruelly don't feel competent, respected, or autonomous, and are often unable to relax after work. However, the survey shows that leaders do feel powerful, which makes them more likely to act abusively, and ultimately ends up harming their own well-being. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. June is Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month. A new survey from the Alzheimer's Association shows that caregiving can either bring a family together or tear it apart. Relationships between siblings were found to be the most strained, with 43% of caregivers feeling their family undervalued their efforts. Ruth Drew, Director of Family and Information Services for the Alzheimer's Association, says there are steps you can take to diminish some of the family tension surrounding caregiving. 
it's critical that families discuss caregiving needs and develop a plan that allows everyone to contribute. Our survey shows that lack of communication can fuel family tensions and add further stress to an already stressful situation. We can help families identify care needs and provide resources to help, including long-distance care tips and care coordination tools on our website at ALZ.org. The Alzheimer's Association invites caregivers and family members to call its 24-7 helpline at 800-272-3900 or explore their resources at ALZ.org. That's ALZ.org. Millions of people love to travel in the summer, but many worry that a medical condition may put a vacation out of reach. If you receive kidney dialysis, you can travel safely and continue your treatments with some advanced planning. First, you should talk to your dialysis nurse or social worker about a travel plan. Costa Arvanitas, Vice President of Patient Admission Services for Fresenius Kidney Care, has more tips. Start planning for dialysis during your vacation as far in advance as possible so we can help find a center nearest your destination and provide them with your information. Don't forget to bring emergency contacts, phone numbers, and emails for your doctor and social worker and for the dialysis centers you plan to visit during your trip. Presenius Kidney Care offers traveler clinical assistance services to patients that can help make planning for dialysis while on vacation easier, including researching dialysis centers and making appointments. Contact our travel services at 1-866-434-2597 or find out more at FresenniusKidneyCare.com and start your vacation with confidence. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.